Hello and welcome to the Max Communications 2020 podcast, a series of podcasts where we explore various archives and collections. My name is Faith Williams and I'm joined today by Rob Baker, Information and Archives Executive for Blind Veterans UK. Hi Rob, would you like to introduce yourself and tell us about how you came to be where you are today? Um, yes, pleasure. Um, thank you for having me. Um, I'm essentially, that's a very grand job title, but I'm essentially the, the archivist for the charity. Um, and I've been with Blind Veterans UK for uh, nine years now. I'm a qualified archivist, so I've worked in various posts before. And it's been a very kind of interesting nine years, really. So how do you spend an average day in your role? Because I think a lot of people don't expect the third sector to have their own archives. Yes, um, some of us, some charities do, <clears throat> by no means all, sadly. Um, a lot of charities have got very interesting histories. And I suspect uh, in these podcasts, a lot of people will tell you that they don't really have an average day, and I think that's fairly true for me as well. Um, my role is quite varied, which is one of the best things about it, I think. Uh, it's also has to be quite responsive to, to events. So sometimes I'm being asked for information, photographs um, to contribute to planning at quite short notice. Um, the, the nature of a charity archive really is in many ways similar to say a business archive. It's primarily there to, to serve the host institution, although um, I do feel a lot um, in terms of external research as, as, as well. But <clears throat> because of that, um, things really kind of come up, sometimes quite unexpectedly. Um, and I very much am there to work with the different um, arms of the charity and support and use and tell the stories from the past, I suppose, um, to support our current day activity. So a lot of the time I'm, I'm supplying material that uh, is used by colleagues in, uh, for example, uh, marketing, our, our social media, our magazine, um, with our fundraising um, staff and with a wide variety of other people. Um, but yeah, be, beyond that, um, I'm doing a lot more kind of routine stuff. I do get a lot of uh, inquiries coming in from researching their family history, from academics and people writing books, all kinds of things who are interested in us or some aspect of our history. Um, so answering those. Um, I'm also involved uh, with the help of volunteers in digitizing, cataloging, um, just generally kind of getting as much as we can do into the archives. What type of material are you dealing with then? So the archive essentially goes back to 1915, which was when we were founded. And I think, again, typically for a relatively small archive, in practice, it's a mixture of archives and artifacts and published material. So in a very big institution, you might have an archive and museum and a library, but in fact, my role kind of encompasses all three of those to extent. And that the holdings are, um, they include um, archive material as, as such. So the records from our foundation in 1915, so formal records such as minutes. We have also the records of um, everybody who the charity has ever supported, going back to the, the First World War generation, we were founded out of the First World War, those blinded in it. And um, that's a, a really rich aspect of what we hold because those people, uh, 
young men mostly, um, certainly for the first World War generation, that came to us, we supported them on a lifelong basis and the records reflect that. So if you came to us at 20 years old in 1915 and um, died 65 years later, we've got a huge chunk of your history record of that. Um, so that, that's a particularly important aspect. We've got a lot of photographs, um, which is great, again, go, going back to the early years. Um, so they're, they're a wonderful resource to draw upon. We have uh, quite a few items either made by past blind veterans or used in their training. So again, so some nice early examples would be, for example, uh, typewriters, um, on which the men learned to type, which was one of the things we, we skilled them up to do. Uh, today, we, we teach IT skills. It's the same principle, it's just technology. Um, so things like that are, are lovely visual illustrations, really, of, of what we used to do. Um, <clears throat> the veterans also, because the idea was very much that we would help support them and train them up to be uh, independent, to have different lives after losing their sight, but still have a full life. Um, so a lot of them went into uh, practical-based occupations, and we taught things like uh, map-making, basket-making, carpentry. So we have some nice items like baskets and trays uh, that were made by the past buying veterans, and uh, they were sold um, and uh, either, either directly by the men themselves or um, through the charity. We had our own shop at one time. Uh, so we have some examples of that. We have things like the complete run of back issues of our magazine. Uh, we have material in a variety of formats as well. Again, quite quite typically, so not particularly a lot of material on paper. Um, we have also quite a lot on um, audio, video, um, and a lot, of course, now digitally. Um, and that, that aspect, of course, is, is very much growing. Um. You've got connections to some quite uh, in, in significant figures. So obviously you have royal visits and things like that. But you mentioned your shop. Was that not uh, in connection with one of the Selfridges? It, um, yes, our shop was formally opened um, by Mr. Selfridge. <laughs> As the recent TV series uh, about his life was uh, titled. Um, so, um, yeah, Selfridge is a nice example perhaps of... of celebrity support. Um, I mean, you, you mentioned, yes, the royal support goes back to the beginning. Um, we, we've had a royal patron for most of our existence. Uh, initially, Queen Alexandra, but then Queen Mother. These things are, are very useful <laughs> um, and important. Um, but yes, we, we have also had a lot of celebrity support. And I think in the early years, a lot of this came <clears throat> through because our founder, who was a fascinating man called Sir Arthur Pearson, who was actually quite famous in, in his day himself, was very well connected. Um, so he would have known um, Harry Gordon Selfridge and a lot of other people. He knew politicians, he knew what of celebrities of the day, business people. And in terms of helping the charity get promoted and supported, uh, this would have been very important. It would have helped with fundraising, um, I think there's an interesting angle as well in that it, I, I think it would have made a difference to the lives of the, the people we helped support as well. Um, in our early years, we were based in uh, a large building in, in Regent's Park uh, called St. Dunstan's, which is where our, our former name uh, came from. 
Um, some listeners may, may know us under the name St. Dunstan's. We, we changed to Pine Battery UK in 2012. And I think for <clears throat> the blind veterans over the years and perhaps the early years, um, having celebrity visitors um, who, who came in, in various ways, really, sometimes just to kind of offer support, but some people come in and gave talks as well, um, you know, contributed to discussions, which men were having, again, as part of the, the whole sense of development and, and um, rehabilitation um, in, in a new and rather different life. Um, that, that must have been really important. Um, so we had all kinds of people, glamorous people. We had film stars visit. Um, and again, that, that kind of support's you know, gone through the whole history of the charity, really. So, yeah, it's a, a nice angle. You mentioned that, um, that you use your material for marketing and stuff like that, presumably to show that you've been doing this for a long time and you're well established, but do you have outside people accessing your collection? Yes, the, the, the archives are very much open uh, to all, um, unless with, with some material there might be some restrictions due to data protection uh, legislation where you've got information about people who are still living. Um, but beyond that, broadly speaking, the, the archives are, are open. Um, I'm recording this at a time, obviously, of uh, coronavirus, so uh, there's a caveat at the moment in that currently mm -hmm. Situation is a little complicated. But generally speaking, the archives are, are available. And yes, researchers do come in. In practice, um, because of the nature of the sensitivities of some material with family history inquiries, um, I and my volunteers would usually answer inquiries of ourselves without um, inquirers kind of needing to come in. Um, and that, that's a free service. We would encourage donations, but we, we don't charge. And we also do things like look to see if we've got um, the person's ancestor in uh, our photographs. As I mentioned before, we, we have a lot of early photographs. Um, but yes, external researchers as well. We, we definitely do get inquiries from um, academics, um, students, that, that includes as well, really. And certainly also people writing books or working on web articles and also media interest as well. And this can be a whole range of things, really. So you, you get some people who might be interested. Would be, there's been quite a bit of interest in an academic level um, on people with facial disfigurement, which isn't entirely our story. Um, there's a groundbreaking plastic surgeon um, called Harold Gillies who uh, worked on this. But we've got a bit of that story. Some of our guys did, did suffer extensive facial disfigurement. We have some interesting photos. We have some interesting details about them. So we, we can you know, add value to, to that kind of research. Sometimes it might be the story of an individual um, veteran themselves. Um, so for example, um, I was contacted a while ago by um, a keen fan of Everton Football Club. <laughs> who was working on um, a history-based piece for, for a fan website. And that, that related for us to a gentleman called Harry Cook, who's one of our World War One line veterans, who had actually been a keen amateur footballer before the war. Um, he was from Liverpool. And um, unfortunately, having lost his sight, he'd had to give up on, on you know, 
playing football. Um, but he, we retrained him as a, as a physiotherapist. And after a, a few jobs down the line, he got what must have been his dream job, um, becoming a physiotherapist for Everton Football Club. And thus the, the, the link. And that was great because the researcher in question, he'd already got some information, some which we didn't have, and we had some information which he didn't have. So we were able to put those two elements together to make a more complete story. And it's, uh, it, it's a great story. Harry was with them for a long time. Uh, he went to the, the FA Cup final with them when they reached that. He treated uh, the famous footballers of the day. Dixie Dean is perhaps the name that's best, best remembered today. And star striker, um, and he stayed there until um, suddenly the, the Second World War, which obviously closed um, again, and he had to move on to another job. So that, that, that's a kind of great story. So yeah, it's it's a wide variety of material, and sometimes it's it's not the obvious thing that people are inquiring about. It's not always to do specifically with, you know, how, how blindness was treated or, or aspects of disability. Uh. Are there any particular challenges you think that come with uh, dealing with your specific archive? Um, there are numerous challenges to um, you know managing and making the best use of the archives that there are. I think with all small specialist archives, you always feel there is too much to do and too little time. Um, <clears throat> I often wish I could play myself, but. Um, yeah, there are particular issues. I think a lot of the issues are ones which archives generally are facing. So, for example, um, digital material, the material that's born digital, to use the jargon, that um, is being created in digital formats, making sure that's being captured and preserved for the future, um, I would say is, is perhaps the, the biggest challenge um, amongst, amongst many. What are your hopes going forward? Are you still collecting material? Yes, um, very much. I mean, th this relates to the digital um, management and preservation in the long term, uh, really. That it's, it's very much an ongoing archive. And that's the point, really, of this material being with the, the organization that created it. That it's not a dead thing. We're a living organization, and therefore we're still generating records, mostly, although not exclusively, digital these days. Um, so the archive is, is continually being added to, continues to accrue. Um, so I suppose in terms of hopes, yes, the, the primary hope is that I can continue to um, capture and adequately represent our current activities so that they're there preserved to be looked back at and are there available um, for the future. What sort of things are you adding then? The work that you're currently doing and things like that, is it just those kind of um, workday records or are you still bringing in, I don't know, um, new braille computers if such a thing exists? Are you doing things like that? Yeah, it, it is a mixture in that sense. We, we are still getting material from the, the way into the past coming in as well sometimes. That's both internally and externally. So some items um, occasionally turn up, some, most often from our centre at Brighton, which we opened in 1938. So occasionally, um, as happened recently in fact, where um, some architectural plans relating actually to the, the 
design of the building as it was when, when it opened in, in the 1930s um, were, were found in a boiler room of all places um, where they clearly had been for a very long time without anybody realizing they, they were there, including me. I'd, I'd never gone um, thought to look in a, in a, a boiler room <laughs> there might be an archive in there, and clearly I should. <laughs> um, <laughs> that's a lesson for the future. Um, other material, not quite so old, occasionally turns up from there and is, is sent along. Um, obviously, yeah, that the, there are more recent examples of just ongoing, um, you know, planning material. Um, so material relating to projects we've recently undertaken and, you know, formal material such as minutes. Um, I'm still gather, gathering in gen, generally um, as, as best I can. Um, but we are also proactive, I think, in terms of trying to um, generate new material. And one thing I should mention here is that uh, we have a new podcast, Unseen Stories, which is uh, a mixture. It's using some material, audio material, already held in the archives, where we've in the past interviewed uh, some of our blind veterans about uh, their lives, their experiences, their, their military service, and about their experiences losing their sight coming to us. Um, but that's being augmented with new interviews from our current blind veterans. And we started really with um, the Second World War generation because we're, we're conscious that sadly, you know, they, they will not be with us um, for a tremendous amount of time longer. Anybody who knows served in the Second World War is going to be already very elderly. Um, but we've got a number of, of um, members who still um, have very interesting stories to tell. So we've been capturing those, started to capture those, and add those to, to this new podcast. Um, and that work will, will continue as well. Yeah, sounds like a great project. What, in your opinion, is the most interesting item you have? What's your favorite? I always think it's really hard for an archivist to pick out a, a particular item perhaps from the, from the archive because part of the point of the archives is they're all interconnected. Really. Mm -hmm. They're all showing what, what we did. But it's perhaps easier from the archives side. Um, well, one item I'm, I'm very fond of is, um, I mentioned before about items made by the past by veterans and um, including a lot of carpentry um, items some of which are quite large, and we wouldn't really even have space for it in the archives if we have them. But so we do, we do have, for example, quite a lot of trays. And um, there's a, a nice story involving um, a gentleman called, uh, his anglicised name was Harry O'Hara, uh, which I think make sound, makes him sound Irish, but he was actually a Japanese gentleman who served in the First World War. He wasn't actually blinded. Um, but he, he was wounded. Um, he served with the Gurkhas and then the Middlesex Regiment, and he married a British girl, and um, he settled in this country. And we don't have the full story, really, about how he came to be involved with us, but he kind of came to help us in uh, around the 1920s, 1930s. And he was a very skilled um, artist, really, lacquer artist, <laughs> And we have um, a tray that's decorated by him, uh, which is an example of clearly a lot of work he did with woodwork items made by the men, where 
they were they were painted and um, had some really beautiful lacquer work um, added to them. So, um, but we've got one example of this in the archives. So there's a really nice, really nice tray um, showing uh, a Japanese building and a child, and it's in kind of red paint background. So it's very striking to look at. Um, so I think that's a lovely example, really, of also of um, the, the charity and people helping us help further, I suppose, the, the work already being done by the Pathfinder Veterans to support the sounds. Um, I think I should say, if I say we we know from catalogues that we've got from these items being sold. That, that Harry worked on a, a lot of these items with a lot of pictures of um, items with these Japanese style decorations on them. But there's literally just the one tray that, that we have with his work on them. So if anybody out there happens to have, you know, have any more of them and would like to give them to us, and we just pick one up um, in a car boot sale or a charity shop, um, we would love to have more. I suppose it's a good thing that they were all sold though, because then that uh, raised funds for the, the charity. Yes, um, it, they would have raised funds really directly for the, uh, for the men, I suppose, in, in, in a sense. Um, how it would, was that we would have bought the items from the men and, the, and, and then sold them, sold them on. I, I say men because um, certainly until the Second World War, it was nearly all men, that being the nature of the military at, at the time. Um, so, um, yes, but it, it would have helped support the blind veterans really make, make a living. And that, that's always been really what we've been about as a charity to say that losing your sight will, will change your life quite profoundly. It is not the end of your life. Um, our founder, Sir Arthur Pearson, was a blind man himself. And this is the ethos he instilled into the charity that if you are supported and trained, you can still have a job, have a family life, have a social life, um, enjoy a full life in the way that a sighted person can do. And certainly at the time that you know we were founded and with the First War generation, um, these, these attitudes were not as commonplace as we would now like to think they are. They're maybe still not as commonplace today as ideally we would like. Mm. So I, I think things like the trays, um, the items made, uh, by the blind veterans, which are absolutely to you know professional standard, you would not know they were made by somebody who could not see. Um, they're a lovely illustration of this. Yeah, are they available to view online? You mentioned a bit of digitisation. Do you have a website that people can look at some of these items? Yes, that, that we do indeed. Uh, so blindveterans.org.uk is the website that uh, is a uh, history section to that and uh, you'll, you'll find it under the about us as these things usually are mm -hmm. so there are a number of images there and information and links um, I also urge anybody who's interested to follow us on social media we're on the usual social media platforms uh, Facebook Twitter uh, our Twitter is at blind veterans blind veterans you can on Facebook we're on Instagram um, and Pictures uh, go out there from from the history. There's always a selection going out together with, of course, our, you know, stories about our current day activities as well. 
And then, of course, your new podcast, Unseen Stories. Yes, so that's available through the website, so liveveterans.org.uk slash unseen stories, or, or just go to the website and you'll find it there. Uh, that, that will be added to further, so again, please do uh, have a listen. It's only about, they're only extracts from the interviews, I should say. They, they went about 20 minutes uh, on average. Um, the full interviews will be held uh, in the archive and uh, you know, are there for research purposes and anybody who's, who's interested in you know, the longer term. But we've picked out you know, a good 20 minutes or so per person, uh, which we hope will make you know, interesting listening in a reasonably bite-sized way. That sounds wonderful. Uh, it's a good chance to hear about people's lives living um, in, in a way that is different from most people's experiences. Exactly so, yes. Thank you so much for talking to me today, Rob. It sounds really um, fascinating, the kind of work that you do as an organization and the collection that has come out of it. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you. Cheers.